0: We're going to look at a story that's probably to many of you unfamiliar and to many of you probably familiar. Uh, The story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5 and not only of Naaman but of Gehazi. We've got these two people on both sides of God's grace and they respond to it in different ways which is how every single person in this room has the opportunity to respond to God's grace as well. So let's walk through the story. Verse 1, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now, as I read through this again, I came to this and wondered why in the world God would give victory to the enemy of Israel, the king of Aram. The Arameans were enemies of Israel. So what business does God have giving victory to one of the enemies of the Lord? Well, we're in the book of 2 Kings, and if you're familiar with kind of the way the flow of Israel's history, you know that in the book of 2nd Kings, the entire book, we've got a great apostasy and rebellion in the land of Israel. In fact, the land of Israel is split into a northern and southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, which is what we're talking of here in Israel, didn't have one good king the whole time. Just a bunch of reprobates. And this is going to prove no exception. And so why is God giving victory to an enemy? Because that's exactly what he said he would do. To the nation, if they rebelled against him, he would allow a foreign nation to come in and spank them, basically, until they decided they were going to follow God. And so, this is what's happened, and the tool in God's hands by which this happened is this man we're introduced to named Naaman. And he is uh, very well respected. Look how he's described. He is the captain of the army. He is a great man with his master. In other words, he is very highly respected and esteemed by his master, the king. Uh, We're told that he is highly respected because he has given victory to the nation. Now, we know it's by the Lord. The text says it's by the Lord, but the Arameans didn't know that. And uh, he's a valiant warrior. In our day, this guy would be the heavyweight champion of the world. He would be the one whom the youth looked up to. He would be the, the multi-time gold medalists in the Olympics. He would be the actor. Like uh, Harrison Ford, he gets like 20 million a movie. The number one actor these days. Um, everybody looks at as, as a success in the eyes of the world. The only hitch in the deal is that he's got leprosy. And this is a major drawback because leprosy is terminal. It's, uh, uh, it's unhealable. There's nothing that you can do but eventually let it take its course and you die. This is uh, kind of akin in, in our culture to the, the disappointment and just you, you kind of feel like the waste that happens with, uh, with like a Christopher Reeve. You know that this good-looking talented actor uh, has this accident and now is paralyzed and there's no going back. You know, in a moment his life has changed forever. It's kind of like Muhammad Ali you know, getting this debilitating uh, uh, Parkinson's. You've got this, uh, this great individual, and, and great, I mean, at his craft. I'm not talking necessarily about character. I'm talking about uh, great in some way, very admirable, the best in the world, a particular thing, and yet he's got this disease. And you kind of go, golly, you know, what a waste. And I'm sure that that's how the nation felt about Naaman. You've got this valiant warrior, the national hero, and the guy's got leprosy. I mean, what a bummer. And leprosy being what it is, Naaman would have realized he was totally helpless to change it. And he was right where he needed to be to be a recipient of the grace of God. Because very often, most often, God can't get through to a person until until they're convinced that they need him and God's got so many creative ways of showing us that uh, we need Him. Whether it's a physical illness like Naaman had, whether it's an emotional struggle, financial struggle, uh, God's got many ways to let us know. That we can't handle it all by ourselves. And in the life of Naaman, what showed him his need was his leprosy. No money could buy it, though he had money. No, no respect could wash it away though he had respect. He had everything except he couldn't deal with his leprosy. He was right where he needed to be to be a recipient of the grace of God. So now look at verse 2. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria which is the capital of Israel. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Often when we are finally ready to hear it, when God has brought us to a place in our lives where we realize we have a need, and there's no denying it, we can't do a thing to fix it, often at that point, God will bring a person in our lives that has the good news particularly, I'm speaking of the the good news of the Lord Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. I find it so amazing and almost amusing of how rapid fire you see this message traveling all the way from a little slave girl to the king of the nation. A little slave girl tells her mistress, who tells her husband, who tells his king, who tells the king of Israel. And that is the power of the good news that God gives. That you don't have to be a high and mighty person for God to, to shake a nation. All you've got to do is have the true message. Her true message is, uh, I wish that, that my master Naaman would go to Samaria to the, captain, to the uh, capital of Israel because there is a prophet there who could heal him of his leprosy. Simple good news message. This little girl affected the whole nation of Aram and their hope is raised. And you can see here how mankind hopes to gain God's grace. The king sends Naaman with a cartload of stuff. We're going to buy it. Here's all the stuff. You've got all this gold, you got all this silver, you've got all these other trinkets. Take them with you. Take this letter written in my own hand. Take it to the king and tell him to heal you of the leprosy. Well, look at how the king responds in verse 7. king of Israel gets this letter. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. You know, I find it amazing that you've got a king of a pagan nation having more faith and even knowledge of the prophet of God than the king of Israel himself. Remember I said that in the book of Second Kings you've got a, a time of great apostasy and there was not one good king in Israel? Well, there's no, this guy's no exception. He takes this letter as a personal affront. He says, this guy's trying to pick a fight with me. Who am I to, to, uh, to heal somebody of leprosy? I can't do it. He must be trying to pick a fight with me. So he tears his clothes in anguish. And Elisha says, why are you tearing your clothes? Why aren't you in anguish? you got a prophet in Israel. Send him to me. And he will know what you have evidently forgotten, and that is that there is a prophet in Israel. And so, uh, he sends him to him. And now look at verse 12. Naaman comes to, to Elisha. Uh, verse, let's see, where am I? Verse 9, excuse me. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, so he turned and went away in a rage. Earlier this month, maybe you read about it, but Carlos Santana, you know, the, the guy from Mexico, famous rock star, well, he says he has, uh, he would, While he was praying, he had a vision of Mexico's most revered religious figure, the the Virgin of Guadalupe. It says that while he was praying, this is what happened. And let me read his own words. He says, quote, I started to cry. I've never cried in my life. And she said, calm down, breathe. I am very proud and happy with you. And he says, when the, mother, when the mother of Guadalupe tells you this, you are alive. This is the same guy, by the way, who thinks marijuana is not a drug. He says this, some people get the impression that to have a religious experience, you've got to see a vision, you've got to be able to touch Jesus, you've got to be able to see a miracle, you've got to be able to, to hear a voice that to have a significant religious experience can't be simply reading the revealed Word of God and simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. There's got to be more to it than that. We like the pizzazz and all the the showmanship that's got to go along with the grace of God. And Naaman, I think this is his problem. He comes to Elisha, and Naaman is so used to snapping his fingers and having people come at his beck and call. I mean, this is the hero of the nation of Aram. He brought all these people with him, mean, they're all standing outside the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha won't even come out himself. Sends a messenger out. Say, so oh yeah, go tell, uh, go tell Naaman to dip seven times in the Jordan on his way home, and he'll be clean. And Naaman is furious. He wants Elisha to come out himself. He wants Elijah to wave his hand over the leprosy and let there be some big ceremony. But Elisha says, no, no. He sends a messenger and tells him, this is all you got to do, just dip, dip in the Jordan. Naaman wanted more than that. And because his pride was offended, he walks off in a rage. The principle that's so clear here, and I might call it the first danger of the grace of God, is that God's grace, the only means of salvation, often offends the unbeliever. You know, like Naaman, we have a terminal disease as well. And that disease is a disease we're all born with. It's sin. It's sin. Sin will eventually take our lives literally, and if it's not dealt with according to God's method, then our sin will be judged, and will be judged justly. Uh, and God's grace is offensive to other religions. You know the promises in the Quran of the forgiveness of Allah come only—you only get Allah's mercy and His His grace by earning it. And so, what we, what will we do? We'll we'll crawl on our knees to Mecca, or in here in our uh, our Christian circles, even. Christians can be offended by the grace of God and say, well, it can't be simply a matter of believing. Okay, the text says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Okay, let's see. What's, what's to add to that? Nothing. By grace we've been saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. What's to add to that? Nothing. And that seems too easy. And like Naaman, we shake our head at the grace of God and we say, no, I can't just be believing. We've got to add to it baptism. We've got to add to it tithing. We've got to add to it prayer. We've got to add to it all these other things in order to really be saved. It can't be that easy. Not only are unbelievers offended by the grace of God, so they won't come to it think it's that easy, but even believers can add on all kinds of amendments and baggage to God's grace. And uh, that, that's a problem. I read about a guy in Lincoln, Nebraska, recently. Uh, last month, he was between—he a truck driver, and he was between deliveries. And he was at this market, and there was some a, a peanut bend standing right there beside him. And the peanuts were about a penny each. And he reaches down, and he takes a peanut and cracks it open and eats it and an assistant manager sees him do this and goes over to him and confronts him and says, hey, you ate that peanut and you hadn't paid for it. And the guy says, alright, well, here. I'll give you a penny. And he says, no. And he calls the police. And the police come out and they give this guy a ticket for eating this, this penny peanut. And the captain, the police captain, made the statement as to why he gave him a ticket. He says, it's not because of the magnitude of the crime. But simply because it was illegal. You know, there may be just a twinge of legalism there. I don't know. But you carry that over into our relationship with the Lord, and uh, we, we try to carry it, you might say, over into our relationship with the Lord. And we will look, compared to all the other stuff that everybody else is doing, we'll say, you know, our, our sin's really about, about as much as a peanut about only that much, you know, only about a penny's worth and I figure I can work that off, you know, by a life of good deeds or living a life that's pretty good. The only problem with that is, if I can quote the police captain, that we aren't condemned because of the magnitude of our crimes, but rather because it was illegal or because it's a sin. You see, one sin is all it takes to keep us out of heaven. And uh, many of us have gone far beyond that, haven't we? You know, you can crawl on your elbows to Mecca and uh, it's not going to erase that sin. So it has to be by the grace of God. That's the only means of salvation. Lewis Smedes says this, he asks, Why do we call God's grace amazing? Grace is amazing because it works against the grain of common sense. Hard-nosed common sense will tell you that you are too wrong to meet the standards of a holy God. Pardoning grace tells you God forgives you in spite of so much in you that is wrong. Have you heard about Coca-Cola's new um, vending machine? They've tried it in other states. Probably going to bring it here to Texas soon, but I'll tell you I would if, if I were Coke and I were thinking like this. They, uh, they have a thermometer on it and the hotter it gets, the higher the price is. It's a digital deal and so when it gets hotter the price on the Coke goes up on the machine. And they justify this saying by this helps to balance the, uh, the supply and demand basically. When the supply is greater, it's going to cost more. When it's not as much, it's not going to cost as much. Again, Uh, We try to take that into our relationship with God. You know, I haven't done that much so the price isn't that big. I really don't need to give my life to Jesus Christ. I just need to live a good life. Well, but the problem is you can't pay for the little bitty sin, much more the big sin. It has to be by the grace of God. And Naaman was offended that it was this easy. He says, I wanted a big ceremony and that's not what I get so I'm going to blow it off and I'll go back to my nation. And if it hadn't been for some wise servants, Naaman probably would have died a leper. Look at what the servants said to him in verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. What wisdom is there and such common sense in these servants. They basically said, look, if he had told you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? You know, if we'd had the big ceremony and if Elijah, Elisha came out and said, okay, I want you to do this and this and this and this, and then you'll be clean, wouldn't you have done it? How much more so when he says, just go wash and you'll be clean. How much more so shouldn't you do that? And the parallel goes right on into where we live today. You know, if God, uh, if God had told you that you need to... John Cram, if God had told you, hey, if you want to get to heaven you got to be praying every day, and you better make sure you face east. If they had told you, Barbara, uh, you better be given 10%, and I'll make it 11% just to be sure. You'd better be doing this, you'd better be doing this, and better be doing this. And if you do all that, if your checklist is good, you'll get into heaven. You know what? If that's the way it was, there's not a person in this room that wouldn't get there. Because that feeds our prideful nature. That's why Naaman brought a truckload of money, figuring that's the way it happens. I give you all this stuff, you give me my healing. And yet that's not the way it works at all. God doesn't say do this and this and this. How much more so if I can quote the servants when he says believe and be saved. Why not do that? Well, it wasn't until Naaman humbles himself. And came to God on God's terms that God healed him. And the healing was immediate, wasn't it? Look at verse 15. He returns. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now why would Elisha refuse the gift? I mean, obviously, Naaman's already healed. And especially, if you were to read back in chapter 4, Elisha took stuff from this Shunammite woman, had a room all fully furnished for him. Elisha took from, him, took from her. What's the problem with taking from Naaman? Well, the problem with taking from Naaman is that Naaman thought all this stuff was the means by which he got healed. And Elisha says, that isn't the way it works. I want you to be able to go back to your country and to be able to say, you're not going to believe this. But all that stuff you sent with me, I brought it all back. The God of Israel healed me for free. If he would have paid him, Elijah, uh, the grace of God would have been cheapened. Well, now a problem occurs. Naaman leaves, starts heading back, and Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, kind of flubs up. Look at verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him. And take something from him. Gehazi's kind of dumbfounded here. That Elisha passes up this opportunity. In fact, the the New International Version translates it, My master was too easy on Naaman. Now, it's not really clear what he meant by that. If he meant that he let an enemy of Israel get off too easy. Uh, If he meant, hey, we're on hard times here. You know, this was the provision of God, and my master blew it. Whatever his reasoning is, he figures, you know, I am going to go take advantage of this opportunity, and I am going to take stuff. I mean, he had a whole wagon full of stuff. He was willing to give to us, and Elisha says, "No, keep it." So Gehazi says, "No, I am going to, I am going run in and get some stuff." And so, verse twenty-one. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, "Is all well?" And he and he said, "All is well." My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give to them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him, And bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. Gehazi here justifies in his mind a lie. Not sure how he justifies it, but you see here uh, him, him lying and saying, My master sent me. Elisha sent me. You know the guy that says he didn't want anything? Well, he's changed his mind. And there's a couple of prophets that have come now and they kind of need some help. And it'd be real helpful if you'd give them uh, a talent each and, uh, and some clothes. And uh, Naaman says, why don't you take two talents? And then it says, and he urged him. So you get the impression there that Gehazi's going, no, 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 no. And he urges him. He says, well, okay. And he binds it up and even has his servants carry it back for him. And then Gehazi takes it and sticks it in his house. And then he did what I would never have done, and he goes and now goes back to Elisha. And look what, uh, look what happens. Uh, verse 25. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. It's like a parent and a child. What have you been doing? Nothing. Can't you just see that happening? There's a principle that we can get from these verses. Not only have we talked about the fact that just as God's grace is offensive to unbelievers, here's where the gun barrel turns around and points back at us. And that is believers can cheapen God's grace by seeking reward for it, thus confusing its source. Confusing its source. You know, I thought about saying believers can abuse God's grace, because that's certainly true, but that's not stinging enough and certainly not as applicable to this passage. Gehazi cheapened it, because what happened? Now Naaman can go back and say, you know what? God did this, and uh, the prophet, I was able to give him all this stuff for helping me out. Now, the king of Aram is able to say, hey, we're able to give, help Israel out a little bit because they healed, their God healed us. You know, kind of a fair trade. And so, what Gehazi has done is cheapened God's grace in the sense in that the source of God's grace is now distracted from the Lord and it's focused on the gifts. And you see this today, and it's so unfortunate. To where God's grace is limited to, you better make your $1,000 vow. Yeah, God will give you such and so, but you're going to have to pay for it. That's cheapening God's grace. If he gives us stuff, he gives us stuff because he's a gracious father. If he takes stuff away, like the book of Job, Job didn't do anything wrong. It's because he's sovereign not because we've earned it or deserved it. What we deserve, thank God, He doesn't give us. But by His grace, He offers forgiveness plus so many other things. Believers cheapen God's grace by seeking war for it. Now, I'm not saying that uh, Elisha uh, or, or anybody in ministry should not uh, expect any kind of monetary reward or uh, a compensation for it. That's in the Bible. What's confusing and what's the issue here is the issue of God's grace costs nothing. God's grace and salvation, they should have no price tag attached to it. And that's the distinction that so often is is not made today. And I think that's so unfortunate because the, the source of God's grace, the source of salvation is taken away from the grace of God and is muddied through what I've contributed That's not the way it was. Elisha says, I don't want anything. But Gehazi muddies up the water. And as a a consequence of so many of the Gehazis we have today, it's difficult for pastors to be able to stand before their congregation and say, you know what? The Bible says that if you regularly come to this church, you regularly ought to be giving to this church. Now how does your heart feel right now when I say that? There's a little twinge there, isn't it? And it's because of the Gehazis that have abused that legitimate use. Well, he goes in and he lies to a prophet. I mean, that's a bad idea, lying to a prophet. And then verse 26, look how Elisha responds. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore... The leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Seems like kind of a severe discipline, doesn't it? But it's also poetic justice. If you're going to have Naaman's money in an illegitimate way, you get to have Naaman's leprosy too. You get one, you get the other. That's tough. He got to keep the money. But do you think it was worth it to him? No way. And the lesson just jumps out of the text there for us as well. That while we may not get leprosy from the sins that we try to abuse God's grace, I mean, you know Gehazi thought, I'm not going to hell for this. I know I'll be forgiven. I know it's wrong. But he went and kind of hid it. And taking advantage of of God's grace on the other side, knowing, hey, I'll be forgiven. But when we do that, there's also a form of leprosy, you might say, that clings to us. Romans 6 asks the question, Hey, can we sin because we can get away with it? The answer is, yeah, but you don't want to because it will ruin your life. For Gehazi, it was leprosy. For you and I, it's often permanent decisions that affect us. Jesus would later say that there are many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha but only Naaman was healed. That's a stinging rebuke of the nation at this time. Not even any of Israel's own lepers got healed because none of them had the faith. None of them had the faith that uh, Naaman had to come from an enemy nation to Israel to be healed. Last Monday in uh, Florida, a city called Niceville, Florida. Isn't that a great name? Niceville. Well, what happens here makes the name even more humorous. There's a 61-year-old woman that was walking her pet chihuahua, a little six-pound chihuahua, and they say that it looked exactly like that Taco Bell chihuahua, you know, that talks. And uh, so this little six-pound chihuahua is being taken for a walk. And out of nowhere, this this red-tailed hawk, five-foot wingspan comes out of the neighbor's bushes and grabs this little chihuahua and takes off. And this 61-year-old woman has got this chihuahua on a chain and so is playing tug-of-war with this chihuahua and this hawk. And, uh, and the hawk won't let go. And she, she says she keeps screaming, Drop the chihuahua! Drop the chihuahua! And it wouldn't drop and so she, she took it and she slung it against a wall you see the 61-year-old lady doing this. She takes it and slings it against the wall and the hawk still won't let go. It drops to the ground, but it's still got this little chihuahua named Bandita. It's still got little Bandita in its talons there. And it took this, it took this woman stepping on the bird and slamming the, the, the bird's leg in a door. <laughs> and finally this poor hawk lets go. And uh, she runs poor Bandita to the vet and Bandita ends up being okay. But this hawk's got to spend six weeks now in the clinic recovering from uh, what happened. You know, that is exactly what we are like when we are wounded and when we are clinging to our sin. We won't let go of it. And we won't get the hint. I mean, the hawk didn't get the hint. You know, this thing's attached to something and there's going to be a fight. didn't get the hint when it was slammed against the wall. It took being stomped on before it finally got the hint to let go of it. And you know, that's what it takes for us. We sometimes don't get the hint until we're stomped on. And like Gehazi, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, when we crawl off and do our secret sins, and then we come back and we hide them, and then we come into God's presence like, hey, nothing's happened. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit went with us. Just like Elisha says, "Uh, Did not my heart go with you when you were there? I saw the whole thing. I was right there with you. Yeah, you're still going to go to heaven. But you know what? There are consequences for that poor decision you made. For Gehazi, it was leprosy. For us, it's many other things. Thomas Brooks made the statement, Saving grace makes a man as willing to leave his lusts as a slave is willing to leave his galley, or a prisoner his dungeon, or a thief his bolts, or a beggar his rags. Saving grace ought to be the motivation to leave those things, to let go of little bandita and to not let it ruin our lives. Naaman was insulted initially that all he's got to do is dip in a river There's the first problem with God's grace. It's often uh, offense to unbelievers. And then on the other side, Gehazi, he is offended that Elisha took nothing for for it. And he cheapens God's grace. And so there's the second one. God's grace can be abused by believers. So offensive to unbelievers, abused by believers. These are the dangers of the grace of God. On the other hand, how should we be acting? To preach the simple gospel with no baggage attached. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff. You just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes care of the first problem. What about the second problem of abusing God's grace? We all struggle with it because we still know we'll go to heaven. We'll be forgiven. But we don't abuse it. We want to let it be instead the motivation to live a life of faithfulness. Well, let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you today for again the opportunity to look into the Bible At a culture so far removed for us, and yet it's describing us to the T. Of people who are so offended by your simple gospel message of belief that they shake their heads and walk away because it sounds too easy. Father, I pray for the ones sitting here today who, like Naaman, would not be healed because of their pride, and yet it took a servant coming and saying how simple it would be to be healed. Simply believe I pray that they would. And Lord, for so many of the rest of us, having made that decision and standing on the safe side of the grace of God, help us not to abuse that privilege. Help us, Lord, to not abuse your grace, but instead let it be the motivation by which we serve you obediently to avoid the leprosy that would cling to us as consequences and instead to press on and to serve you faithfully this is our prayer lord for today and for this next year we pray in jesus name amen lord bless you